Well, welcome everybody to our Good Friday celebration. I was reflecting as I was greeting people in the back of the room that last year we weren't here for this. Isn't it so good to be back and celebrating and remembering Good Friday as a family? And I'll tell you what, our team has put a lot of effort into tonight to make it a time where we truly remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for us, how he came and laid his life down willingly so that you and I may ultimately have life. I have a couple of things to ask as we're in here this evening. First, try to let everything else in the world just slip away for the next hour. Don't focus on the things you're going to do after this. Don't focus on what's happening in our country or your personal life. But over this next hour, focus on the sacrifice that Jesus made for you and me, how he laid his life down. As we're here today, remember our sin, your sin. Remember how we were separated from God and Jesus came and made a way for us to have life and to have it eternal. And as we're here today, We're going to have moments of worship where we sing. We're going to have times of remembrance. We're going to celebrate communion with one another in just a few moments. And actually, if you're watching online, if you could go grab communion supplies at home so that you're ready when we do it together. As I was preparing for tonight, I was reminded of these words from Peter in 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Good Friday is a day of remembrance, but it's also a day that starts us on a path of hope. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Over the next hour, we're going to focus on Isaiah 52 and 53. We're going to break it down into eight different chunks and different presenters from our preaching team are going to teach on one of those chunks. It's an opportunity for us to sit and remember and to reflect. So as I pray for our time together tonight, I'm going to pray that your attention would be solely focused on what's happening in this space, that your hearts would be open to whatever the Lord may have for you this evening, and that as you leave... You leave changed tonight. Whether this is the first time you've ever been to a Good Friday service or your 30th time, that the Lord would do something in your heart this evening. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for even the ability to be together this evening. This chance to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for us, how he laid his life down so that ultimately we could have life eternal. And Father, I pray that in the moments that follow, you would, you would speak to each of us individually. That your still small voice would inform our actions, our desires. That your Holy Spirit's presence in this room would, would touch each and every heart. For those watching online, wherever they're watching from, they would have an encounter with you tonight that would transform their lives. And Father, I pray that as a result of being here tonight, we all walk out changed, transformed because of what you did for us. We thank you that we can be together like this. We thank you for Jesus coming to this world, Father. And we pray all these things in his mighty name. Amen. we 
My servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. This is for the ones that hurt. This is for the ones that have been bullied and belittled. This is for the ones who have been passed over and picked last. This is for the ones who have suffered and been stabbed in the back. This is for the ones who face trials and temptations and turbulations. And this is for the ones who wake up every day and it hurts. You feel like your body has betrayed you with chronic pain. And every day you know what it wakes up to feel hurts. This is for the ones that hurt. 
And it's a word from the prophet Isaiah, from Isaiah 52 and 53, where the prophet is foretelling what it will be like when the Messiah comes and what especially the weekend events of Good Friday will be like. And he says, when Messiah comes, he will do what's right. He will act wisely. And that's good news to all of us who know what it's like to hurt. That's good news for us because we know that he's going to set those things all right. He's going to rectify all the situations. Our hurt won't hurt anymore. And he says that the the Messiah, when he comes, will be high and lifted up. And that's a significant phrase used for the Messiah because that's a phrase that Isaiah only uses for the Almighty God. Throughout Isaiah, he uses those words, high and lifted up, to describe God. In Isaiah 6, he has a vision of, of the Lord. He says, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. When Isaiah says that the Messiah is high and lifted lifted up, we know that not only is he going to set things right, but he has the power to set things right. Not only does he have the prerogative to do it, he wants to do it, he can do it, and he will do it. And so in that moment, we're left saying, tell us more, Isaiah. And Isaiah says, he's going to suffer. He will know what it is to hurt. The kings and queens and the powers of this age will look on him and cover their eyes They will cover their faces in shock and horror at what is done to him. He will know what it is to suffer. When we look at the cross, we see that God sent his son to set things right. When we look at the cross, we're reminded that Jesus was high and lifted up in the way that nobody saw coming. Spread eagle on a tree, pierced for you and me. And when we look at the cross, we're reminded that somehow in the horror of the cross there's comfort for those who hurt in the horror of the cross there's this reminder that God has not stood aloof to our suffering he's not stood at a distance and had to imagine what it might might feel like to hurt but he's entered into it and he suffered this is for the ones who hurt that when we look at the cross we're reminded that God knows what it's like to hurt He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. These words from Isaiah remind us that our humble Savior came as a tender shoot, unassuming, not meeting the expectations that were put forth before him. They also remind us that our Savior came and was put in an environment of dry ground. Ground that wasn't fertile, it had no nutrients, no water, no hope and joy of rebirth, no guarantees. He was not guaranteed the fertile ground of spring that we get to experience now in the purple and white crocuses that come. He was not displayed his strength like the strong strength of a steadfast oak tree but in dry, parched ground, in a barren wasteland. And some of you may be feeling like you're placed in that similar environment. Maybe you're experiencing the dry ground of an unhealthy marriage or a broken relationship. Maybe for you, it is the dry ground of of a bad financial situation or things that are mentally, physically, emotionally, socially challenging. But let me assure you tonight that you are in good company. You share a dry, barren environment with our Savior. Isaiah tells us that nothing was desirable of his environment and nothing was desirable of his appearance. There was nothing that we should be attracted to him. And oh, how deceiving appearances can be. They say the beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And yet we live with so many social constructs that tell us what these ideals should be. We see beauty in the form of white teeth and a symmetrical face and perfectly proportioned body. We see sex success that's indicated by the charm of a architecturally interesting designed house with some farmhouse charm. We see freedom waving like a flag in the wind. Those are the ideals. Those are the social constructs that we look to. We see leadership as a tailored suit with a tight leather briefcase, a hefty mutual fund, 
Maybe we see strength in a sleeve tattoo zipping away on a Harley, or we see influence by how many social media followers you can attain. And yet our Savior had none of these, nothing that he had lived up to expectations that people put on him. He was a humble servant. He wept. He was human. He was not grandiose nor majestic. He didn't come wielding his power like an untamed sword. No, he was human and he was dismissed and he was denied and he was abandoned. And so tonight we have to ask the question, when Jesus, our Savior, does not meet the social expectations, the constructs that we put before him, that we expect him to be, what do we do? Do we dismiss him, deny him, and abandon him? Or do we have the strength and the courage and the faith to foul an unlikely Savior? Do we have the faith and the strength to foul a savior who is a tender shoot that thrives in spite of the dry ground. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. phrase that stands out to me in that passage is acquainted with our deepest grief. Acquainted with our deepest grief. I think one of the most frustrating things when we are experiencing grief or we're experiencing sorrow is that we feel like we have to experience it alone. Or maybe some circumstance or situation in our life. We can't imagine that anybody else would ever be able to relate or understand or comprehend what it is that we are going through. Maybe a situation in the past or the present or something that maybe we're going to encounter in the near future. But the reality is that Jesus is acquainted with our deepest grief. He has been there. He understands it. This passage also says that creation would despise him and turn their backs on him. We see all throughout scripture, all throughout the gospels, as Jesus was ministering here on earth, that people would despise him, and turn their backs on him. Religious leaders, Pharisees, the people of his own hometown, his actual disciples, best friends that he spent three years with, would turn their backs on him leading up to the crucifixion because they were afraid to be associated with him. Jesus understands our deepest grief because he has experienced it. From a place of purity and authenticity, he gets it. He's been there. And in addition to that, you and I often turn our backs on him. When things in our life don't go the way we planned, when we pray for something and it doesn't turn out how we hoped, we think, you know what, Jesus, this isn't working the way I expected it to, so I'm going to turn to something else and try and fulfill myself that way instead. And this grieves him deeply. And in addition to the time that he spent here on earth, as he was on that cross, he experienced separation and grief from his very own heavenly father as he himself became sin, wearing the weight of the sin of the world from past, present, and future, yours and mine on his shoulders in a moment of becoming sin, becoming darkness, and not even being able to associate with his heavenly father who is pure love and light. He experiences and understands grief. And so the grief that he experienced that day on the cross far outweighed the physical agony of the crucifixion on that dark afternoon. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. So far we have seen that the servant of the Lord was a man of sorrows. People who saw him were shocked. He was despised and rejected. And when we come to verse 4, we see why God's servant suffered. 
we find the reason. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Now we know why he suffered. Now we know who is to blame. It's me. It's you. It's us. He wasn't punished for his own sins. He was punished for our sins. He suffered and died for us as our substitute. Now we look at his disfigured face. Now we look at his hands and feet differently. This is not random pain. This is not a plan gone horribly wrong. This suffering is the fulfillment of a plan. Our punishment became his punishment. Our pain became his pain. Our death became his death. So he suffered for a reason. And in exchange, only God could or would do. His wounds opened the door for our healing. His death opened the door for our forgiveness. And he entered into death so that we can enter into life. Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends, writes this. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed.
We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Most of us watch superhero movies. We envision ourselves as the superhero, not typically as the villains. Good Friday reminds us that we are all, in fact, the villain. The book Ordinary Men describes the true story of the 101st Battalion Division, which was 12 men who were very ordinary men when you meet them in the beginning of the book. The book highlights how over time, based on their circumstances and the pressures that they were under, they slowly became the most vicious, violent group within the Nazi party. These 12 men went from being pretty normal people to murderers. And the reality is, it, the book really shows how each of us has murder in our hearts. Each of us has hatred in our hearts that could be stirred up potentially. And that may sound like a stretch, but if you consider the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, it doesn't seem like quite a stretch anymore. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, You've heard it said to people long ago, You shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. He goes on, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And again, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You and I are the villains today. And Jesus paid the price. Today's the day to remember that we're guilty. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. I may be the only pastor at Waterbark who's ever worked at a slaughterhouse. I did so during middle school and high school, and this slaughterhouse happened to be just down the road from the home where I grew up. And can I tell you, whether I was riding my bike by or walking by or heading there to work, the animals in the pen headed toward the kill floor were always screaming. It was quite disturbing. And I often wonder, do they know what awaits them? And do they know that their screaming won't make a difference? I mean, why bother? With that, listen to Isaiah 53, 7 again. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And here's what we know about Jesus. He knew what awaited him. He was clear with his disciples about that. So screaming and pleading would have made sense. But Isaiah 53, 7 prophesied he wouldn't. And he didn't. Not at his trials, before the beatings, and before his condemnation to the cross, even though people were saying, defend yourself. Don't you have anything to say for yourself? Not on the cross. To use any of his last breaths for his own behalf using them instead to forgive a criminal next to him and to ask God his Father to forgive those who were doing such horrific things to him. And even as we think upon his arrest earlier, as an angry mob comes, Jesus says this in Mark 14, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching, you did not arrest me. But scripture must be fulfilled. And what Jesus meant is I am the fulfillment of the scripture. Indicating his understanding of his ultimate calling and purpose. To be led away. Led away like a lamb. Led away like an innocent lamb for the slaughter. Which we mourn tonight. 
Now we do know there was a point where he did cry out. He cried out for his own behalf in the garden to God, his father, the one who ultimately mattered to him. God, his father, who is the author of the plan of redemption. God, his father, who is the author of the plan for the forgiveness of sins, which was and is Jesus. What we see here tonight leads us to be so thankful to Jesus, to be humbled by what we see and to be reverent regarding because what we see is his obedience, his obedience to death, even death on a cross, which his silence signifies. Going back to those animals in the pen headed toward the kill floor at that slaughterhouse I worked at, did their screaming make a difference? No. But Jesus' silence did. It made all the difference in the world for you and for me and for all. Because it indicated his willingness to die and be the sacrifice that we need. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Isaiah 53 answers the question of how God can be both compassionate and full of wrath. We see in these verses that he pours out his compassion on his people, but he saves his wrath to be fully satisfied on his son. But in these verses, you might ask, we don't hear anything about Jesus. The term Messiah isn't used. We don't hear about God's son. We just hear about this suffering servant. And we know that the suffering servant the description of him could be used for any of the people who were crucified and who suffered in the 700 years between this prophecy of Isaiah and the coming of Christ. But it's in these two verses that we just read where it becomes very clear who the suffering servant is. We're told that he was unjustly condemned and we know that Jesus's trial was a farce. It broke Jewish law, which said that there had to be 40 days in between a death sentence and its completion. And yet for Jesus, it was a matter of hours. We're asked who protested? Who protested this injustice? And we see that for Jesus, nobody stepped forward. Not the crowds that he healed, not the poor that he fed, not the down and out that he encouraged or those that he freed from demonic powers not even his disciples or his siblings, people that he had invested years into, appeared at his death to protest this injustice. We're told that the suffering servant was cut off from the living, that he didn't just suffer, but that he died, not for his sins, but for the sins of others. His body, according to the custom of the day, was supposed to be disposed of with the other criminals, thrown into the burning pile of garbage outside of the city. But Jesus's body was buried in a rich man's tomb, Joseph of Arimathea, with the proper spices and ointments used to respect the dead. Why was this one grace shown to Jesus after so much disgrace? Well, it's because Jesus carried the sins of the world on his shoulders, yet he remained sinless with no violence or deceit. This cannot be said about any other human being. Can anyone here say that you are free from violence in your actions, your thoughts, and your speech? Can anyone here claim to be free of deceit, never having told a lie? Of course not. Jesus had to die because of you and because of me. God's wrath that was rightfully ours was poured out on Jesus so that God's compassion could be poured out on us. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. 
he will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. Throughout history, some people have argued that the crucifixion of Jesus is a tragic accident, that Jesus was simply at the wrong place at the wrong time. But this was no accident. Jesus going to the cross was God's good plan from the very beginning of time. In fact, God chose his son, Jesus, fully God and fully man, to be born into this world to die. Jesus was holy. He was righteous. He was sinless. Yet God's good plan was to crush him, to cause him to grief, to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins, you and me and the entire world. On that first Good Friday, men are doing to Jesus the worst that they could do to another man, an unjust trial, abusing him, beating him, slapping him, and whipping him. They humiliated him, embarrassed him, mocked him by placing a crown of thorns on his head. And they nailed him to a cross, a torture device of that day, like a criminal. And they pierced him to the point of death. Now this is a picture of men doing the worst that they could do to one another and they were pleased to do it. But at the same time, as we read that God was pleased to crush Jesus, while men are doing the worst that they could do for themselves, God is simultaneously doing the best that he can do for sinners, for you and for me. Why was this God's good plan? Because God is just and sin must be punished. Sin is so destructive, it requires the death penalty. A debt that you and I, that we all owe. The reason why we call today Good Friday is because Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us.
we partake in the Lord's Supper this evening, we get to relive a little bit of Jesus's last hours. You see, before he was laid in the tomb, before he was hung on a cross and died, before he had a farce of a trial and was beaten, before he was arrested or before he was alone in, the, in Gethsemane by himself, before any of these things, he sat with his closest friends and they celebrated the Passover together. They did what every other Jewish person had done forever. And they remembered, they remembered the goodness of God and their deliverance years and years ago. But this Passover was different. Jesus knew what was about to come his way. He knew the pain and the sorrow that was gonna, he was gonna face in just a few hours. And this was different. As he took the bread, it was unlike any time anybody had ever picked up bread at a Passover before. As you walked in, you received a communion cup and a little piece of bread. If you could take that little piece of bread right now. Matthew records what happened in, in Matthew 26, where he writes, while they were eating, Jesus took the bread and we had given thanks. He broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. Go ahead and eat the cracker. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus laid out this moment, he asks us or he instructs us to do this again and again, remembering his sacrifice for us, remembering what he did on the cross, remembering that through Jesus, we can have life to the full. But that was hard for them to see right now because as he was arrested, as he was beaten, as he was hung on the cross, as he died and was placed in the tomb, it looked pretty hopeless. In just a couple days, we'll be back at all campuses and online to finish the story, to share the rest of the story, if you will. I ask that on Easter Sunday, you would be back. You would come as we celebrate. But as you leave tonight, have the celebration in mind, but remember the weight of where we've been tonight. How Jesus, how Jesus laid down his life for you, for me. And don't let that slip away. Don't forget that reality, that beautiful, beautiful reality. Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for a chance to, to get together and to remember the sacrifice that you made for us, Jesus. How you laid down your life. And like Pastor Keith said, you didn't object. You didn't speak up. You, you knew what was coming and you took the pain. You took the punishment because you have a love for us that we'll never understand. Your deep care for us, your, your love, your compassion, is far beyond what our simple minds can understand. And we thank you for what you did. God, I pray for Sunday as we celebrate. I pray that it would be the most joyous day 
that maybe we've ever celebrated anything in our lives as we come together and we peer into the empty tomb. We thank you, Father. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As you do go, please go in silence, keeping this attitude of worship and remembrance that we've begun in here. Have a great evening.